0: Easter Sunday, we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, his resurrection outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Uh, did it happen? The historical case is a strong one, even as we look at Uh, The record in Matthew's gospel, uh, this particular historical account of the resurrection, there are things even here that say, gosh, this almost definitely happened because the first witnesses which we see to the resurrected Jesus are a woman named Mary Magdalene and another woman simply referred to as the other Mary, Mary the mother of James and Joseph mentioned earlier in the passage. And uh, for you, for me, that doesn't mean anything except that two people saw it. But in the first century, when this was written, they would have stopped and said, wait a minute. The witnesses were, were what? Men? No. Oh. Women. Women don't have legal standing in a court of law. Women in either a Roman legal system or a within within Jewish jurisprudence at the time had no standing to testify to anything. And anyone in the first century would have read this account and been awkwardly embarrassed by it thinking they could have done better than that. Why, if there is a God and he raised Jesus from the dead, why would he have entrusted the most important piece of information in the history of the cosmos to women? If the early Christians were making something up, it would have been men who would have seen Jesus. The only reason they would have recorded Women being the ones entrusted with the most important information in history as if it had actually happened that way and if they felt compelled to tell the truth. This rings strongly as history. We're going to read the account in Matthew 28, the first ten verses. If you want to look in the Pew Bible, it's page 1549. You can follow along, you can watch, you can listen. As we read the account of the resurrection of a Jewish teacher 2,000 years ago. After the Sabbath, at dawn of the first day of the week, that is Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen. Just as he said, Come, come. And see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. And so the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell the disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him. They clasped his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they too will see me. A man dies. A real death. The Romans were skilled executioners. They didn't get killing prisoners wrong. And then... The men all having scattered, the women are left to bury his body. And then the women going back to the tomb find that it is empty. An angel, heavenly being of some sort, speaks to them. And then they encounter the resurrected Jesus who is alive again and invest them with this most important news that he is risen to go tell it to what would soon become known as the early church, the early followers of Jesus. The dead come back to life. In the words of Shakespeare's Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. When a dead man, truly dead, rises from the grave, it opens up a new world of possibility. What if it's not a fairy tale? What if it actually happened? What if it's all true? What if death doesn't get the final word? The historical case is strong, but what does it mean that Jesus died on a cross? And what does it mean that on the third day, he rose again, back to life, transformed, glorified, not just resuscitated, but raised to a whole new life, a whole new way of being human. If it's possible that Jesus died on a cross and rose from the dead, then we're going to have to wrap our heads around these two foundational events. What did they mean? First, we're going to look at the crucifixion. Then we're going to look at the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus. Why did Jesus have to die? Jesus had to be crucified. He had to die in order to end the quarrel, that is the warfare between humanity and our Creator. It's warfare that has gone on almost as long as humanity has existed. As as we resent the suffering and the pain of this life and shake our fist at God quietly, wondering why He would allow such evil to befall us. And and as God looks upon us and sees us guilty and ashamed in our sin and separated from His life, broken off from, from fellowship and refusing to honor Him fully with all of our lives and our every waking thought and dream. You know what it's like. Some of you, you've had quarrels that have gone on for decades. You know what it's like. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. Does it sound like your marriage? Maybe, maybe not. No, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. You're the one that's wrong. Can't you see that you're wrong? You're getting emotional. I am not getting emotional. Do not make this about my emotions. Quit trying to control me. You're wrong. No, I'm not wrong. You're the one that's wrong. Can't you see you're wrong? Can't you see even telling me I'm wrong makes you even more wrong because you're wrong for telling me I'm wrong? And it goes on for decades, and it never, ever, ever stops, always beneath the surface, that enmity, that conflict, that tension, that distance until finally someone decides to stop it. And how do they end it? But by humbling themselves and saying, okay, I'm wrong. I'm willing to take the blame. I'm willing to be the guilty party for the sake of being reconciled together. And that's what God was doing, nailed to a cross. In this conflict between humanity and God that has gone on as long as human history has continued, God in the conflict was stepping up to the plate and taking responsibility, even though we were the ones that were wrong. God was saying, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm going to take the blame. And on the cross, you see God the Son, Jesus claimed to be divine. On the cross, you see a God taking the blame for all of the injustice and all of the hate and all of the idolatry, and all of the rejection, and all of the ambivalence that we have toward him, all of our sin against him, night and day, we see Jesus, God the Son, the Righteous One, and all of his goodness nailed to a cross, taking our blame. And when you see that kind of goodness, goodness itself taking the position of the guilty party. That alone, friends, has the power to break a hard, proud, ice-cold heart and crack it open to actually experience the love of God. That alone has the ability to humble us so that we look at Jesus, crucified, bleeding, absorbing all of the wrath and guilt for our sin. And that can move us to say, no, Lord Jesus... You were not wrong. I was wrong. We were wrong. It was our fault. Jesus taking the blame for my sin to end this warfare between God and humanity. That's what the cross is. It's taking the blame, taking the responsibility for my rebellion. This world, it's a sick cruel world. It's a world of beauty and glory and mystery and grace created by God, and yet the Bible says it's also fallen from that place of goodness and grace. It has lost its goodness, not in totality, but everything is broken. Everything is damaged. It's that sense we all have that things ought to be a certain way, and they're not. In any culture, any religion, any philosophy, any background, any perspective, whoever or wherever you are at any time in history, universally human beings have an experience that the world ought to be a certain way, and that it is not. And the Christian Bible alone gives an explanation that the world was made good and it ought to be good and there shouldn't be death or tears or suffering or pain or betrayal or rejection. Children shouldn't die of cancer. People shouldn't grow old and die. It ought to be different. And the Bible tells us that's because we were created good, but we are fallen. And so it's a world that's also filled with cruelty and sickness and shame and apathy and abuse. We are so much less than God intended, so much less than the best of humanity. And we all know that. We are a glorious ruin made to be godlike and yet damaged beyond all recognition. And the cross puts that on display. It was the Dutch priest and and philosopher, author, Henry Nouwen, who who told the story of a family he knew in Paraguay. The father, a doctor, had spoken out against the military regime at the time and its human rights abuses. And so the local police took their revenge on that doctor by arresting not him but his teenage son. They took his teenage son and they tortured him and they tortured him to death. The enraged town folk wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march, but the, the father, the doctor, refused and chose a different means of protest. At the funeral, the father displayed his son's body exactly as he had found it in the jail. There, inside the funeral, his teenage son's dead body lie naked, scarred from electric shocks and cigarette burns and beatings. And all the villagers filed past that young boy's corpse, which lay not in a coffin, but on the same blood-soaked mattress that the father had found him on in the prison. It was the strongest possible protest, for it put injustice and cruelty and the human condition on, on grotesque display. And that's what God was doing on the cross. The cross that held Jesus' body naked and bruised, bleeding and marked with the scars, exposed all the violence and injustice of this world. At at once the cross revealed what kind of world we have, that that it is sick. It's damaged. Human nature is that flawed, that distorted, that desperately in need of forgiveness and cleansing and healing and grace. And yet the cross also puts on display what kind of God we have. For in a world of gross unfairness, it is God's tortured body, that lies on that blood-soaked mattress. It is God who takes the blame for all of our evil and impunity. It's God upon the cross. The cross reveals a God of of self-sacrificial love. It offends our pride because it tells me, Greg, you are that bad. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you. Yet it also says you are so loved. That the God, the creator of the cosmos, would actually step into history and subject himself to that level of abuse. And cruelty. He took the worst the world had to throw at him. It is no wonder that when Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph saw Jesus resurrected again, they fell at his feet. They clasped his feet with their hands and it says they worshipped him for they saw in Jesus a God of self-sacrificial love, a God who dies to heal his enemies, to take all of their guilt upon himself, a God who is Worthy of worship. One of the greatest of human evils, the worst of humanity, was the Nazi Holocaust of the 1940s. Nine million victims, six million of them, simply because they were Jewish. John Lennox, a professor of mathematics at Oxford University, tells a story about a time he toured Eastern Europe and there he met a Jewish woman from South Africa. The woman told Lennox that she was researching how her relatives had perished in the Holocaust. And at one point on their guided tour, they passed a display that had the following words on it. Arbeit macht frei, or work makes free. It was a mock-up of the main gate to the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. The display also had pictures of the horrific medical experiments carried out on children by the infamous Dr. Joseph Mengele. And at that point in the tour, the Jewish woman turned to Lennox. She stretched out her hands and she asked, And what does your religion make of this? Lennox describes his thoughts at that moment. What was I to say? She had lost her parents and many other relatives in the Holocaust. I could scarcely bear to look at the Mengele photographs because of the sheer horror of imagining my children suffering such a fate. I had nothing in my life that remotely paralleled the horror that her family had endured. But still she stood in the doorway waiting for an answer. I eventually said, I would not insult your memory of your parents by offering you simplistic answers to your question. What is more, I have young children, and I cannot even bear to think how I might react if anything were to happen to them, even if it were far short of the evil that Dr. Mengele did. I have no easy answers. But I do have what, for me at least is a doorway to an answer. What is it? She asked. You know that I am a Christian. That means that I believe that Yeshua, or or Jesus, is the Messiah. I also believe that he was God incarnate, come into our world as Savior, which is what his name Yeshua or Jesus means. Now, I know that this is even more difficult for you to accept. Nevertheless, just think about this question. If Yeshua, if, if Jesus really was God, as, as I believe he was, what was God doing nailed to a cross? Could it be that God begins just here to meet our heartbreaks by demonstrating that he did not remain distant from our human suffering, but became part of it himself. For for me, this is the beginning of hope. And it is a living hope that that cannot be smashed by the enemy of death. The story does not end in the darkness of the cross. Yeshua conquered death. He rose from the dead, and, and one day, as the final judge, I believe he will assess everything in absolute fairness and righteousness, and mercy. There was silence. She was still standing, arms outstretched, forming a motionless cross in the doorway. And after a moment, as tears fell from her eyes, very quietly, but audibly, she said, Why has no one ever told me that about my Messiah? Before. A God who not only sees the cruelty and the hate in the human heart, the evil in our human story, but who, who enters into that evil story and becomes its ultimate victim, the ultimate victim of injustice for humans to snuff out the author of life, and yet God submitted to it freely and willingly for your sake to end the war between God and humanity, to end your quarrel with God and my quarrel with God and God's quarrel with us both. And to do so by taking the blame himself, by bearing our sin, by becoming the victim. It's why Jesus had to die. It was on purpose. This isn't found in any human religion. This is only found in the person of Jesus who paid the penalty who accomplished salvation, who, who rescued us. It's not what we do for him, but what he did for us. It's the judge who sees his son come before his court and sees that, that we, the son, are, we are guilty. And, and he sentences us to the, the proper penalty, which is death. And then the judge himself comes down from the dais and he turns himself over to the bailiff. And he says, now I will take my son's punishment for me as his legs are chained, as his arms are chained, and as he is carried off to the death chamber. It's why he had to die. The Buddha's final words, strive unceasingly. Jesus' final words on the cross, it is finished. I've done it. There is nothing more for you to do but to receive the gift I give For your sake. Saving us. Friends. When this captures your heart. It's going to change you. When you know that you've been forgiven. Of all of your sins. Big sins. Against God himself. When you've been washed and cleansed. And you hear the voice of Jesus saying. You are now clean. I accept you. I embrace you. I welcome you home. When that gets into your heart, you realize that church is not about a bunch of good people hearing a good person tell them how to become better. But church is a gathering of bruised and broken sinners loved by Jesus, washed by him and set free so that they can turn and love other people. When this captures your heart, you realize God's not an angry ogre shaking a stick at you. You see him as your dad who's taken responsibility for all your debts and he's taking care of them fully, finally, and forever. That critical voice inside your head that's constantly evaluating other people and judging other people, that voice gets muffled when you know you've been forgiven that big of a sin I realize I'm in no position to judge anybody but myself. It humbles you and it breaks your pride as you realize that Christ, your Savior, died for you and you are that loved and that secure and that blood-bought loyalty moves your heart to then love Jesus, to want to be numbered among his people because he died to take your blame, to end the war with God and to make peace. Friends, Christ has died and yet this is Easter. And so I say to you as well, Christ is risen. What is the significance? Why did Jesus have not merely to die but also to rise? Yes, it was to confirm that that payment to God for our sin had been received in full. The Father had accepted Jesus' condemnation instead of condemning us, that Jesus Bore it and it was acceptable. But there's a lot more to that because the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible always presents it as something forward looking. Jesus as the first fruits that he, as he died and overwhelmed death and conquered death, that as he rises, he is that first little peach on the peach tree that tells you that soon you're going to have dozens and dozens of peaches. He's the first to rise and thereby the, the promise that all those who believe in him will rise to eternal life as well. That's our Christian hope, that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but that we live forever and a day will come when even our bodies will be made new, when even the body planted in the earth will rise once again to a transformed cosmos. As a pastor, I often see... Just how fragile human life is. How quickly, in a moment, everything can change. As I watch people I love facing death, as I then stand at a graveside on a rainy day and look down into a hole as a body of someone I loved is planted into the ground, friends, at that moment I see The objective promise of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he die, he shall live forever because I will raise him up at the last day. Friends, do you have that hope? Is that the trajectory of your life, you know, that that beyond your sunset years, there is a new beginning coming? And as you see your days becoming numbered and becoming fewer and fewer, as you see the wrinkles on your face and the cracks in your forehead and and your hair start to change colors and one part of your body after another starts breaking down and you're always patching or repairing or plugging some part of your body. Friends, as that happens to you, and, and some of you are awful young, but it is happening. You are still in the land of the dying. And yet if Jesus was who he said he was, if he was telling the truth, if he rose, friends, then a day will come when you will pass from the land of the dying into the land of the living, of eternal youth and eternal life where you will have the body and the life that God intended. If this is true, friends, then beyond the career and the kids and the retirement and the weddings and all of the planning and all of the hospice stay and getting your diapers done and and waiting to die, beyond that, friends, You've only just begun, and the best is yet to come. Do you have that hope? Is that inside of you, that confidence? Do you want it? Don't take my word for it. It doesn't rest on me, but on the objective promise of Jesus of Nazareth. Tim Keller tells a story of a traveler in Italy who saw the grave of a man who had died centuries earlier Uh, The man was not a Christian, in fact, he was completely against Christianity, but he was also a little bit afraid of it, too. And so the man had a huge stone slab put over the top of his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there actually is a resurrection from the dead. And, And he had insignias put all over this slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Now, evidently, centuries earlier at his funeral when he was being buried, evidently an acorn must have fallen down into the grave with all of the fill dirt before they put the slab on it. So that a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through a tiny crack in the slab and had actually split the slab, and it was now a tall, towering oak tree. And the traveler looked at it, and he asked if, if an acorn has no life in it at all. If an acorn has the power to split a slab of that magnitude then what can the acorn of Christ's resurrection power do in a person's life? What can it do? Planted beneath the stone slab of a hard and cold world, the body of Jesus planted in the earth, bringing about the harvest, changing and breaking the ground above it, Jesus is an acorn dropped into the ground, the power of his resurrection, the power to transform your life, to transform the entire world. Death, if this is true, death doesn't get the final word. Scott McKnight shares a story of, uh, of Margaret Alt. When, when Margaret was just about to complete her PhD at Duke, uh, this was a couple decades ago, something unexpected but really quite welcome happened to her. Margaret fell in love. She went on a date with a man named uh, hyun Gu Kim, and the proverbial sparks started flying right away. But almost as quickly as the sparks became a fire, they were doused with water because Hyunggu gu informed Margaret that he was HIV positive. This was a couple decades ago when HIV meant a death sentence. Needless to say, Margaret was devastated. In her own words, she says, I just met someone I liked and we were definitely not going to live happily ever after. I felt like I'd been kicked in the gut by the biggest boot in the world. And still, she and Hyung were married. In his book, McKnight asked the question that you or I would probably ask, which is, why would anyone invite into the core of their being so much pain? And the answer unfolds in the rest of Margaret and... Hyung-gu's story. For when Margaret was in graduate school at Duke, she and Hyung-gu, they would love to walk in the gardens at Duke. And so they became very knowledgeable and, 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 and they, in fact, kind of supervised construction of a new project there. And they walked through each part of the garden routinely together and they had names for some of the ducks even. And in their last spring together, the garden seemed especially Beautiful. Yet Hyunggu gu died in the fall, and Margaret returned to the gardens in the spring where a memorial garden of roses was being constructed in his honor. McKnight then points the reader to a series of quotations from Margaret's book, Sing Me to Heaven, where she reflects on the day that she returned to those gardens at Duke. She writes, Where peonies were promised, there were only the dead stumps of last year's stalks. Where daylilies were promised, there were unprepossessing tufts of foliage. Where hostas were promised, there was nothing at all. And yet I know what lushness lay below the surface. Those beds that were so brown and empty and the unknowing eye so unpromising would be full to bursting in a matter of months. Is the whole world like this? Is this what it might be like to live in expectation, real expectation of the resurrection? For there beneath the ground... Brown and empty and seemingly dead, just beneath the surface, so many bodies like seeds awaiting the resurrection. When they're brought back to life, Jesus, by dying, by giving his infinite life, overwhelmed the grave such that the grave could not hold him any longer, my friends. And and if you have Jesus, it will not be able to hold you either. It's the promise of new life of renewed love, of the power of God. Jesus was raised from the dead. Friends, when it captures your heart, it sets you free. This Jesus who died to end the war between us and humanity and who rose from the dead, the first fruits of the harvest, so that you too, if you have Jesus, will certainly rise again. Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again to make all things new. His grace has led us safe this far. And his grace will lead us home. Ever since he was a kid, Bob Goff had a dream to sail across the Pacific Ocean to Hawaii. And so Bob and four of his buddies entered the TransPAC race. It's a semi-annual sailboat race from Los Angeles to Hawaii. And with limited sailing skills, uh, Bob and his friends loaded their 35-foot sailboat with canned chili and bottled water, and they set sail for Hawaii. But for Bob and his friends, it wasn't really clear that they knew what they were doing or whether they would ever actually reach the finish line. Bob writes, there's a tradition in the TransPAC race, no matter when you finish the race, even if it's 2 in the morning, when you pull into the Ala Moana Marina in Oahu, there's a guy who announces the name of your boat and every crew member who made it to the trip. It's the same guy, and he's been announcing each boat's arrival at the end of every Transpac race for decades. And Bob and his friends, though, they had a lot of problems. Their boat went off course. They didn't really know how to use uh, uh, the equipment on their sailboat, and there were problems with the weather, and with the wind, and with the waves, and with their equipment, and they were running out of supplies, and it was really a disaster. And they thought that they would probably end up stranded in the middle of the Pacific as hours turned into days, and then days eventually turned into weeks. It was an utter nightmare. He writes, just when we came to the end of our supplies, we managed to sail across the finish line just off of Diamond Head and into the marina. It was a few hours before dawn. It had been 16 days since we had set out from Los Angeles in our little boat, knowing very little about navigation. And suddenly the silence was broken by a booming voice over a loudspeaker announcing the name of our tiny little boat. And then he started announcing the names of our ragtag crew like he was introducing heads of state. One by one, he announced all of our names with obvious pride in his voice, and it became a truly emotional moment for each of us on board. And when he came to my name... He didn't talk about how few navigation skills I had or the zigzag course I'd led us through to get there. He didn't tell everyone that that I didn't know which way was north or that all of my other sailing was, was just one mess up after another. Instead, he just welcomed me in from the adventure like a proud father would. And when he was done, there was a pause. And then, in a sincere voice... His last words to the entire crew were these. Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Because of the way he said it, I welled up and fought back tears. I wiped my eyes as I reflected in that moment about all the uncertainty, all of the questions that had come with me in the journey, all the sloppy sailing and how little I truly knew. But none of that mattered now we had completed the race. I've always thought that heaven might be kind of a similar experience after we each cross the finish line of our lives, that I imagine it will be like floating into the Hawaiian marina when our names were announced one by one. At the end of our lives, after our many mistakes and midcourse corrections, our loving Heavenly Father will simply say, Friends, it's been a long trip. Welcome home. Christ is risen. He can lead you home. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks because you are the one who died to end the war with God and you are the one who rose again so that we might have the hope that we too will rise. We consecrate to you the elements on this table this Easter Sunday. Lord Jesus Christ, King of the nations, we worship you and we welcome you. Amen.